0: Good morning, everyone, and welcome to the Sons of Sequoia podcast, broadcasting live from Wheat Ridge, Colorado, the home of the champions. Today is Tuesday, August 24th, and our episode will be a Movie Tuesday, but it's a special double feature. The first one is a 2019 documentary from Netflix entitled The Creative Brain, and the second movie we will be discussing is a 2004 documentary called In the Realms of the Unreal, uh, directed by Jessica Yu. How are you this morning? You're uh, muted.
1: Hi, David. Uh, It's a beautiful day, and I'm looking forward to the discussion because the creative brain—these two are very interesting uh, uh, opposites of one another, but they both uh, are addressing creativity.
0: They are, and uh, the watching the creative brain, just their selection of how they chose to define creativity, made me remember this movie that I'd seen years ago called "In the Realms of the Unreal." Just because I think a lot of times. Creativity, uh, in many ways, has to be externally validated, and in the realms of the unreal, it didn't. But that is not to say that the creative brain is not without its merits.
1: Yeah. In other words, creativity can come in all different forms, and from different sources, and they can look to, they can look very different. And I think these two uh, really illustrate that quite well. Yes, definitely. So, getting into the
0: discussion about the creative brain, um, there's a neuroscientist named David Eagleman. I like how he did, he was the narrator. They don't even have his picture on IMDb. But he went around and interviewed a bunch of people who are thought to be, in their fields, creative people. And it was a little bit like the most unknown, where one scientist talks to another scientist, talks to another scientist. It was fascinating to see how these people from different disciplines approach creativity. Um, so there was the writer that went into prisons, and he said, you know, teaching prisoners that they have agency, that they can be creative, it's one of the most rewarding things i have ever done. There was the lady, Michelle Kane, who is a nanotechnologist, um, who used Shrinky Dinks, the toy, as... The template for her entire career, basically. It saved her career. Uh, and then there were some famous people like Tim Robbins, uh, Nick Cave, Grimes, uh, Dan Weiss, the co-creator of uh, Game of Thrones, or the co-showrunner, because I guess George R.R. R. Martin created Game of Thrones. And he had some interesting things to th- say, and we'll get into that as the discussion continues, because I think that they chose him to be one of the last people to go, because he really does wrap up the film. And something he says, I think, it's a lot like what that um, astrophysicist said at the end of Particle Fever about failure to failure with undiminished enthusiasm. Mm -hmm. Um, So there's a movie, Particle Fever. Uh, And, of course, this is a tangent because we're talking about two movies already. But here's a third movie called Particle Fever. (laughs) And it's about the Large Hadron Collider and how theoretical physicists will get to see some real-world evidence about how their theories play out in the real world. And this guy was a superstring theorist, and it was sort of like the war between the superstring theorists and the multiverse theorists. And the initial data coming back from the Large Hadron Collider sort of played more into the opposing theory that he hadn't spent his life working on. And they asked him how he felt about this data coming back from the Large Hadron Collider. He like, said, well, I'm going to move on, and I'm going to try to refine my theories with this new data that we have in mind. Because moving from failure to failure with undiminished enthusiasm is the key to success. And I I always thought that line was uh, fantastic.
1: (laughs) Yeah, you do it not to win. You do it because it's there. Mm -hmm. You climb the mountain because it's there. It's not to get to the top. It's there. You got to do it. Yeah, a a lot of it is a journey, not necessarily the destination. I mean, there's so many, so many ways to say it. But I love the, I love that quote too, David. Now I
0: want to ask you a question. If you want to go into it, when we watched the Creative Brain, you mm-hmm. said I really enjoyed that. It was inspiring. It was like the opposite of all these movies we've been watching about artificial intelligence. Would you care to elaborate on that? <laughs>
1: uh, well, I think I think what I what I meant was is that. Uh, When you talk about creativity and creativity from humans, it's something from nothing. Uh, In other words, the creation of something, you're creating something from something, but then what you're creating didn't exist before, but it came from something. And uh, AI uh, really uh, takes what has happened before and and then just uh, uh, delivers another version of it, but it doesn't create anything new. And I think uh, humanity, humans have an ability to say, yes, there's A, B, and C, but instead of modifying A, B, and C, let's pick a D over here, which no one ever thought of. And so artificial intelligence just looks at the data that they have, and they don't necessarily create something that hadn't existed before. And so human can create something from something, but that creation is something that uh, uh, is, is new. Yes, To me, that that's part of humanity. I think that's what I meant uh, back when we were looking at it, because the creativity of all these people saying, what if, what if, what if? And that's not necessarily what artificial intelligence does. No, not at it all. It says, this is what is. This is what is. And they can do it much faster than humans. But what, what uh, uh, algorithms cannot do is create something that doesn't exist, that doesn't fit. The norms of the past. Mm-hmm. So, to me, that's,
0: that's being human. For instance, you can teach AlphaZero to play chess, and it'll be any human chess player. But AlphaZero will never take a thousand chess boards and a thousand sets of chess pieces and make a sculpture of King Louis Fourteenth. But a human will. And
1: Or, or they won't take uh, all those chess games and learn how to play chess so precisely. And AlphaGo will never create another game uh, of of uh another total different game uh out of out of some of it of interest. Mm-hmm. They don't have an interest in some other game because they're focusing just on that. So they focus on just that game. And they don't have they go outside the boundaries of of learning how to play checkers or something. Mm-hmm.
0: I mean, oh, yeah, I mean, but just not even a game, you know, like you could make art, right. you could create something, you could discover that um, the rook in a standard chess piece, a chess set, is the perfect tool to prevent um, sea life from getting strangled in six pack holders somehow. And so you apply that to a different, totally different walk of life. And AlphaZero was never going to discover that this piece could be used for a completely different purpose in a completely different field, but humans are able to do that.
1: That that's even, a, that's even a better analogy, David, uh, be, better, better, uh, uh, a string of explanations. And I agree with that. So humans can come up with, uh, creativity means creating something from something, but you're creating something that's new from something that's old and you don't just redo the old. Mm-hmm.
0: Now, um, do you want to get into any specific people that were mentioned in the movie? Oh, let me—I don't have it pulled up. There we go.
1: Uh, let's see. I, I we can just start going through uh, each one of them. That they all they all had a different view of creativity. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I thought thought that was interesting, and. Uh, one was like the astrophysicist and the nanotechnologist. They they were trying to think of of reasons why something happens. And they were trying to think very creatively that that could this connect with what's happening? Could this connect with what's happening? But they would do it different ways. Mm-hmm. And uh, uh, I, I really, I enjoyed it. It was thought provoking in that creativity is not one thing. It's many different things that each one of these demonstrated. Each one of these people, uh, they demonstrate different ways you can create something uh, from their past or what they want or from their desire uh, that was not necessarily uh, an equation or an algorithm. Yes. So, so I, 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 don't, I, don't, I can't pick any one person. Uh, that they, they all pretty much had the same kind of a uh, process. I Okay, so here's
0: my... Um, a gripe with the movie—not really gripe, but criticism. Mild criticism is, I you know, I come from the world of music, so I know more about music than other disciplines. So when I think of Tim Robbins as an actor, I kind of just think of him a standard actor man. I think of Shawshank Redemption, whatever. Um, I've never read a Michael Chabon novel. Uh, they said, you know, Nathan Mirvold was described by Bill Gates as the smartest person he ever met. Uh, Mar- Robert Glasper, I've actually never heard Robert Glasper's music. But when we get to the musicians, these three were presented in pretty quick succession. Khalees, Nick Cave, and Grimes. And Khalees was presented as someone where find you, apply your creativity to a different discipline. So after achieving hit songs like Milkshake, My Milkshake Brings All the Boys to the Yard... She became a chef. She went back to culinary school. And I thought to myself, okay, but her music was pedestrian and it wasn't that creative. And I wonder if her culinary endeavors are also very commercially driven and not particularly creative. So you could say she had success. That proves she's creative. And now she's a chef. And that proves she's also creative. Yes, she's continuing to create, but I don't know. I don't know if she's the best example of creativity as a musician. It's just someone that's achieved success in creative fields in two different creative fields. And of course, if you achieve success, someone likes your creation,
1: right? Well, I think the second move we're going to look at, uh, not necessarily. (laughs) That's true. Uh, Henry, uh, uh, Henry, he created something epic, but no one ever knew it. Mm-hmm. And then, So he didn't, he didn't do it for recognition. He did it to do it. I think part of creativity is something that comes from you, and you don't do it for someone else. You do it for yourself. Mm-hmm. So moving on, uh, we have Nick Cave and Grimes,
0: and they're held up as creative musicians. They're not just breaking... I mean, they're not just you know, doing what's the norm. They're doing something out of the norm and that shows that they're creative. But I've never heard a Nick Cave album that I liked. I'm not a <laughs> fan of Nick Cave. Now Grimes, I like I mean I I've heard some Grimes music that I like, but she said Grimes is not me. I forget what her real name is. You know, if it was me, it would just be like noise. So with Grimes I have to put a pop sensibility on it. And it's like that's the thing, combining, you know, stuff you've already had. Um so they chose people that are offbeat. And they said, because they're offbeat, that's an example of creativity. But I was saying to you, that's one example of creativity. And they're very close to each other because both Nick Cave and Grimes are very offbeat. But what if you had someone that studied Mozart? And I, I, what did Mozart have, 42 symphonies? Let's Google it. Let me see. I think you had 42, right? Oh, 50. Okay. A little over 50. So let's say, list of symphonies.
1: There yeah, they are.
0: Symphony number 18. Let's get to the bottom. 18. Wow. Um, yeah. Okay, so I said 41, because that's the last numbered symphony. So I was sort of right. <laughs> mm-hmm. I was almost yeah. right. So yeah. let's say you have the Jupiter Symphony from 1788. And a person says, I love Mozart, I'm gonna study Mozart. And they study from symphony numbered number one to symphony numbered 41. And they say, I'm gonna take everything I've learned and I'm going to write a symphony in the style of Mozart. And they sit down at their, I mean, they won't be using Stav paper, they'll be using computer software these days. And they write a symphonic score. And then they have a symphony orchestra play it and people hear it and they say, is this Mozart? This sounds, I mean, this is, is this an undiscovered Mozart symphony? That person's not breaking the mold. But I think that what they're doing is inherently creative. Don't you agree? They're doing something that was done in 1788. It's not new and innovative, but they're creating something new in the style of something that's 200, 300 years old. And that is new and innovative.
1: Yeah, that's, I agree. I agree. That's, that's creative, something that no one's done before. But let me ask you, since you're down this path, let me ask you a question, David. Mm -hmm. Talking about music, and you just mentioned three musicians and then someone who would, uh, uh, a fictional person. So you're talking about music, creating music. What would you consider creative music? And what would you uh, consider music that's not creative? That's a very good question. Because...
0: Uh, to sort of skirt your question real quick, <laughs> I i guess my definition, and it's hard for me to articulate exactly, does, oops, doesn't jive with the three or
1: four that they chose. Do you see what I'm saying? Yeah, so why are they, you think they're not as creative as, why not? I just, I
0: think that the, a lot of musicians are creative. A lot of musicians are, um, and they're creative in different realms. Take someone like Eddie Van Halen, who is a very good guitar player who developed new techniques on guitar, and he had his own musical sensibilities, but people would say his strongest suit was probably not his songwriting, it was his ability to write guitar solos. And then you take someone like John Lennon, who played the Rickenbacker guitar, and you know, he didn't even play lead. He would just play chords because George Harrison was the lead guitar player. John Lennon probably wasn't even as good of a guitar player as Paul McCartney. And yet, who's more creative? Eddie Van Halen, the guy that can rip up and down the fretboard and do things that sort of melt your face off with a guitar? Or the guy that can barely play guitar, but he wrote across the universe. It's, it's, (laughs) there's, it's multi, like even within music, creativity is multidisciplinary.
1: So what is creativity? Uh, is If if creativity, if a simple definition of creativity is you create something that hasn't existed before from something else, mm-hmm. and you move from one point to the other point that, that where you've moved has never been done before, if that's creativity, it could be something, it could be anything. And if that's true, uh, what part of that, movement is is human and what part of it is machine
0: yeah i don't know the answer to that question <laughs> i don't know the answer to that
1: question but i think that uh, that that's the uh, the paradox of uh being human because we've talked about artificial intelligence a lot and algorithms and now we're talking about creativity and hum- humans human creativity is is that humans have the ability to uh to have contradictions, and and to create something that is contradictory, and then and then embrace it. And uh, uh, machines do not. And and creativity sometimes is something that uh, a machine would not do or not accept; it would say it's wrong, uh, but humans would accept it. And so all of a sudden you have uh, a Bach, uh, or you have. Uh, a Mozart or a Telemann, something that that was not part of, or you have a Vivaldi, something that wasn't the norm, but it was so different that people would embrace it, and so you're creating something from something that uh, sometimes it's it's acceptable and sometimes it's not, but sometimes that which is not acceptable is considered creative because someone did it themselves it Mm -hmm. was it was a human endeavor and a human consequence and a human uh derivative now from from humans do you remember when we watched *Sunspring*? Uh
0: that was the movie that was written by ai so let me just pull up on the screen right um an experimental science fiction short film written entirely by an artificial intelligence bot using neural networks Mm-hmm. Um, we watched it and it didn't really make any sense, but it's still early days for this technology. So, Benjamin, the automatic screenwriter—that was the name of the, the name they gave to the—was um, a self-improving LSTM RNN machine intelligence trained on human screenplays, and it was only trained on like 500 screenplays. Now, if you gave an artificial intelligence you know, more to work with and you had a larger team of programmers on it, how long would it be till you get to a level of cohesiveness equivalent to that of a human screenwriter? And does that mean that a human screenwriter's creativity isn't all it's cracked up to be? They already have artificial intelligence composing music and it's sort of like Sunspring where it's almost there, but then you can see that it loses the plot. And I think that maybe it loses the plot in terms of a human's consciousness. It keeps the plot in terms of its own internal rules that it's digested from listening to, being fed music. Do you see what I'm saying?
1: Yes, yes.
0: So it's following, like, and is that where creativity lies? But if it can sort of bridge that gap, then what's the point of having a human composer? Because the computer didn't feel anything. That's the fact, that's my answer. The point of having a, human composers, because the computer didn't feel anything. The computer can create music that makes humans feel something, but the composer, when they make the music, they're trying to communicate a feeling, and the music is the abstraction of that. And we were talking about this the other day, how a writer, when they write something, they're using language, and language is an abstraction of their thought, and written language is an abstraction of the language that's within them. So it's an abstraction of an abstraction. I would argue that m- music is an abstraction of your emotions as well. Uh, and it has to fit within these very narrow rules. There's only 12 notes. I mean, if you're using the Western musical scale. And, and so you're, you're limited. You're trying to express your emotions abstractly through music. Same with painting and art. And I, I wonder if, if you can argue if artificial intelligence doesn't have emotions... Is what they compose, is what they write, is that art?
1: We get back to the suns, the suns, the was it called, sunrise, sunspring, sunspring. When you get that, back to that, they created something, a conglomerate of uh, the resource was something that already existed. So they reorganized everything and pulled things from it and created a movie, uh, uh, or created a script uh from something that already existed but then humans will create something from something that a feeling or an experience or a thought and then they can take that and put it into writing and so it's the same kind of process but it's not from from the same generic uh source it's from a different source in other words a lot of what humans will do is create a painting or a song or a poem or a novel from experiences that they've had or from thoughts or from something that they want to to share that's inside them. And they want to express that with uh, some type of form of communication. But artificial intelligence says, I'm going to take that, that communication and reorganize it and create something from that. In other words, uh, the uh, the the algorithm that created that movie, *Sunspring*, uh, pulls things from other sources. But who created the sources to begin with? You know, who created those movies to begin with? Yes, but it, like Alpha Zero, it didn't study any human
0: games like Deep Blue did. It just played against itself until it became the greatest chess
1: player in the world. Yeah, but who created the game? that's true so the point is because (laughs) they created rules from a game that already existed they're creating something from something that existed but they're not going to can you take the rules of go rules of go and can that same algorithm create the rules for chess you know or rules for three-dimensional chess or something Uh, they're not going to do that uh but humans will say let's let's do something crazy let's and then they start being creative and creating something from from uh, a desire uh, that they can create something that doesn't
0: exist yes i, guess I think I, it's fascinating i worry and michael chabon the author he said and I, i'm paraphrasing but he, he said in the movie i you know i write novels and let's say i want to write a novel about uh and he gave a stock plot a woman who's lower class and she marries an upper class man and her uh husband's family is distrustful of her motives it's like, I can think of 15 novels throughout history that have that plot. But that doesn't mean I can't write that novel. I just have to put my spin on it. That's basically what he was saying. And that's creativity. How do you tell a story in a new and interesting way? Because um, every plot's been used before. So really, humans do that too. Humans do what Sunspring did. They take every they take the body of literature that they have within themselves. And I mean, we saw that Henry Darger did that in the next movie we'll discuss very shortly. Um I guess the, the thing is, if a human didn't do it, can it still affect you? I believe so. I think algorithms oh. will compose music that'll bring tears to your eyes because it'll remind you of something or or whatever, you know? But mm-hmm. but I don't believe that the computer should be venerated because it, the feeling that it's giving you is just by applying, by tugging at heartstrings. And I, I guess an artist can do the same thing, though. They know when to tug at heartstrings. They know what beats to hit. In what succession to elicit an emotional response in you? So
1: it's a but, difficult question. But I think it's about the feeling. It's about the feeling. A, a, a bot can create something that a human can feel, but the bot didn't create that from feeling. A human could create something from feeling, and then you feel something that you're feeling from what a what a human would do. Mm-hmm. For example, what what was that? What was that algorithm where you? It would randomly put words together and create a phrase. What was it? Uh, that was that? Uh, Inspirobot.
0: Should we do one?
1: Inspirobot. The point there is that uh, when Inspirobot puts together a phrase, some kind of a saying. Go ahead and do one. Okay, we're at
0: Inspirobot.me. It's an artificial intelligence that puts together insp- inspirational phrases.
1: We're clicking generate, and Inspiro- randomly puts together a phrase. Cows are the solution. <laughs> They pick cows, they put solution, made a sentence, and they're just random. And they randomly now, put
0: a, a image with it.
1: And an image. Now, my question right there is that cows are the solution. You can do it again. Responsibilities are just women coming to suck your blood. <laughs> to, just, to, uh, let's go back to cows of the solution. Cows are the solution. The, cows are the solution. My point is, when they put that, to, when, the, when the algorithm put that together, was there feeling in in saying that? No. Uh, machines don't have feelings but when a human reads that cows are the solution well if you're a farmer then maybe that could mean something to you about some of something in your life you can connect with that with something else that may be very very emotional mm-hmm. uh, so my my point is you can create something they can create something and just because you have feeling from it doesn't mean it's human yeah, because it, the, the the feeling didn't generate it. On the other hand, if if uh, a human generates something that has feeling, quite often, a human can can identify that feeling and and create the, their own feeling from that, mm-hmm. their emotions from that, uh, and that there's where uh, music. You can have very good music. Uh, the lyrics of a song like uh, "Across the Universe" uh, are. John some of John Lennon's great songs uh, he had a message and that message was clear all the way through but that message came from him and you can identify with the emotion that was in those words and lyrics and even in the, in the music so maybe that's a little bit of a difference between uh, uh, human creativity well or machine creativity can machine be creative of course they can if you define creativity as creating something hmm but what's the difference? One, one uh, taps into the emotions and feelings of humans. Yes. And, um,
0: you know, a musician or a writer, they have to constantly be creating new things. And I think the fascinating thing is at the beginning, they show this nanotechnologist. And she said, I had this idea and it changed my whole world. I remember these shrinky dinks. We would print the circuits and then we would put them in the oven, and they'd shrink down, and then they'd be the nano size. We couldn't work at that size, so we worked at a bigger size, and we shrunk them down. But the thing is, that changed your career. When did you come upon that? 15 years ago? Was that the last time you were creative? Have you just been <laughs> doing work since then? So why should we hold you up as a creative? You you were only creative once, 15 years ago. Uh, if you're not in the arts, um, there's not... I mean, a creative breakthrough can be the difference between success and failure, but you don't have to constantly have creative breakthroughs if that gives you a competitive advantage in the marketplace. Mm -hmm. Um, And there may not be a reason to search for a creative breakthrough when really what you need to do is the work. And that's true as artists as well. Like, oh, I need a creative breakthrough. It's like, no, just just create stuff. And that brings me to the last thing I want to talk about about this movie, which was Dan Weiss, D.B. Weiss, as he bills himself, the co-creator of... Well, the showrunner, the co-showrunner of Game of Thrones. And there's something he said that I thought was really awesome. And this is before we move on to the Henry Darger story. He said, I was a writer. And I went through my 20s and I went through my 30s. And I was a failure. I was a failure from the day I graduated college till the day I got the job on Game of Thrones. He's like, but I was a writer and I wasn't a particularly good writer. But every time I sat down at that computer, and every time I wrote something, every time I put words into that computer, I was failing my way towards my ultimate success. And I thought that was a fantastic uh, perspective to have.
1: I, I love that. From failure. And you mentioned uh, uh, before... Uh,
0: The the, the theoretical physicist? I forget his name. From
1: from failure to failure with undiminished enthusiasm. Well, like D.B. Weiss, you you failed your way to success. Mm -hmm. Failure to failure to success. Without each of those failures
0: that happened in his 20s and his 30s, they were all meaningful. And they didn't seem meaningful at the time. You write something and you present your script to someone Mm -hmm. and they say, no, we're going to pass. And you say, not again, you know. Uh, well, let me go write a new script and try to get that one. We're going to pass. Not again, let me go write a new script and get that one. You're refining your craft and you are getting better. Maybe, you know, you don't get rejected because of the world. Maybe you get rejected because you're not good enough yet. But the fact that you did something and presented it for
1: review made you better than you were when you started that process. So do you see failure as a reason to quit? Or do you see failure as a reason to keep going?
0: Yes, I, I'm re- re- reminded of Greg Wells at a music conference I went to. He's a famous mixing engineer. He's like, "Yeah, in the music industry, there's not such thing as success or failure. There's either I gave up or I didn't give up."
1: That's right. That's right. Well, and how and how much can you can you uh, learn from failure? Uh, you can learn a lot. Mm-hmm. You can learn what not to do. <laughs> yeah. Or just keep going, and maybe also. Uh, I worked with someone, and she was telling me their husband published, wrote this article, wrote this paper, this 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 uh, academic uh, paper, submitted to a journal, got rejected. Submitted to a journal, got rejected. It got rejected, 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 and uh, he just believed in it. He believed in it. He, he and he kept submitting it. And finally, she says it finally got accepted by a journal. But not only did it did it get accepted by the journal, that that journal uh, uh, awarded it the paper of the year. So from failure to failure to failure to paper of the year, mm-hmm. uh, which is unusual, uh, it, they, they pick one paper that they publish all year and that this is the best paper they've had. But it, it wasn't. It was a failure until it became the best paper of the year. So Oh, sometimes success and failure is just in the eye of the beholder. And so when you fail, don't see that as a failure. See that as a reason to keep going mm-hmm. because you're doing you're doing the right thing because you're doing what you want to do. And that's why people should do what they want to do. Yeah, you shouldn't do things to be successful. You should do things because that's who you are. And I, I,
0: I don't know if this is true because the, he's the Game of Thrones guy. But maybe something that was on his hard drive from 2002 is the best thing he's ever written. Something that got rejected roundly by everyone. And he may not go back to that. So to classify it as I just failed and failed and failed until I found success, that success is commercial success. Um, And, of course, it is a creative success because he created something on a scale larger than he ever had in his entire life. With Game of Thrones, there's actors, there's sets, there's dragons, Um, so yes, that is a success, but I think you could argue that
1: everything you create is a success in some respect and because, because you did it and it was yours and it's no one else's no matter how good or bad it is. And
0: everyone that was, and this is one of my things as we transition to the next movie, Michelle Kine had a breakthrough in nanotechnology. Nathan Mirvold's invented a million things. Phil Tippett's been asked to animate for movies and film. Robert Glasper's won a Grammy Award. So he's been, you know, recognized by his peers. Michael Chabon has written novels in multiple genres that have sold pretty well. Um, Tim Robbins, obviously, Shawshank Redemption. These musicians have all had some acclaim. D.B. Weiss, he created Game of Thrones. It was saying, these people are creative and... Their success is validated by the outside world. They've had a hit song. They've gained notoriety. They've pursued a career um, where what they do is their creative endeavor. Now I want to talk about a man who pursued a career as a janitor.
1: But the key phrase that you said very quickly, David, but I picked up on, that it was validated by Would you say validated by their peers or their validated peers? by
0: uh, society at large in terms of commercial success?
1: Yeah. Or are there are their peers or their area? It was validated by it was had an external validation. And so but now what if, what if you don't have that? Yes. Is that still creative?
0: Yeah. I mean, Grimes is a musician. D.B. Weiss is a writer and showrunner. Tim Robbins is an actor. Robert Glasper is a musician. The guy we're about to talk about, his name is Henry Darger, and he was a janitor. Uh, And the movie is called In the Realms of the Unreal. And he lived his life in a one-bedroom apartment. And when he died, uh, his landlord went into his apartment and discovered that he had written a novel that was over 15,000 pages, probably over 2 million words. Uh, Along with this novel, there were thousands of paintings and works of art. And he'd spent his life alone creating this singular work. I mean, of course, they said he had over uh, 30,000 pages of writing because he wrote an autobiography. He spent 10 years tracking the weather and complaining about how the weatherman was wrong. But his main work was The Vivian Girls aka The Realms of the Unreal, which is a 15,000-page novel about the war between, I don't know, two people. I forget the names of it. Now, I don't know if this novel is good or not. I'm not sure that it's even been published, and it's not available in the public domain. But this guy spent his life creating this, and there was no external validation. No one even knew it existed until he was on death's door at the poor house across town, and his landlords cleared out his apartment. So I think this is an interesting study in creativity. He wasn't motivated by external success. He wasn't motivated by the recognition of his peers. He wasn't motivated by commercial gain. This was something he did for thousands and thousands of hours, his whole life. So what's your take on it?
1: It makes you think, what is creativity? What is human creativity? And I think you can't, to me, uh, you can't really talk about human creativity without emotion, desire, commitment, uh, That, that, uh, that's unexplained. You say, I don't know why you're doing that, but I'm going to do it anyway. I can't, sometimes you can't even say why you do things, but I want to do them anyway because they're inside me. Mm-hmm. I think it's humans being human. And I think that's, to me, that's what Henry Darger did. He went home and he wrote these stories after story. after. He just continued and continued and continued. And he didn't do it to write the story. He did it because that's who he was. Yes. And he He's, I'm just going to write. I'm just going to write no matter what. And so you are who you are. And he understood that and he did that. And the, uh, the movie that we saw said that, uh, he was nice. He's a nice guy, but he would never talk to you. He was a loner. <laughs> I think he had one friend, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, but he never, he would, he wouldn't really say hi. He was just, he'd go to his room and write. And he was asocial. And, uh, but that was just who he was. That was just who he was. It was fascinating. And, uh, uh when they went in, and they found all of this writing they had pictures of it in the movie. It was it was remarkable, the volumes and volumes and volumes of and how they went in and start reading through what he did. And, uh, and, uh, and also the pictures, he had all these different pictures and it, and it just revealed his, his world. And he left, uh, he left the room because he couldn't take care of himself when he got old. And his landlord, what was fascinating to me, he said, when he left the room, when he left his world, uh, he died shortly thereafter. And in my mind, I'm thinking, well, uh, when you leave your world, it's very difficult, difficult to keep living because you have no reason to live once you've left your world. And so people need to create their world and not live for something that's not real. Live for something that's real. And then, then you'll, to me, that's that's uh, humans. Uh, that's, that's life. Mm-hmm. But could What's you arg- your take
0: on it? Could you argue that he lived for something that was not real? I mean, his book was called The Realms of the Unreal. <laughs> and that's the world that he lived in more than the real world.
1: Yeah, he had, he lived, he. his writings were unreal. Mm-hmm. But his world was real to him. Yeah. He had to write, and he had to write these stories, and it was his way to express all of his feelings. And his feelings were real; uh, the story was unreal; <laughs> it didn't happen, and his pictures were were unreal as as well. But him writing was real, and him expressing himself that that was his that was his existence. Yeah. Now,
0: I do think here's my take on it. They told about his early life. And it was a tragedy. You know, his dad got sent to the same poor house he died in and then he got sent to a school for feeble minded children. It sounded like a nightmare. And I can imagine that in the 1910s, a school for feeble minded children in Indiana or whatever, that, or Illinois, wherever he was, was a nightmare. Mm-hmm. And I think that a lot of his writing about protecting the children, that's like what the Vivian Girls is about. And there's an evil army that wants to hurt the children. And there's a good army that he's on the side of that wants to protect the children. That's just sort of him dealing with the psychological trauma of his, his formative years. Um, now, he's a person that I don't think he was offered any resources. And it just proves, even without resources, some people will find the creative to be a coping mechanism. Now, I'm sure that you can't really read the Vivian girls from cover to cover. It's probably too difficult So it's not like war and peace. Um, But you can admire his artwork. He did a lot of pieces. I saw his artwork at the uh, American Museum of Folk Art in New York City. And it was fascinating. It's fascinating stuff. Um, So I think instead of taking his own life or being a criminal, he saw holding menial jobs at hospitals And then creating for the time that he wasn't at work as that was how he would get through life. And he chose creativity instead of, you know, a quick escape or some other path that would have been far more unsavory than writing a 15,000 page book.
1: Yeah, I bet if you asked him, uh, how big is your book? I bet he wouldn't know. I, says, I don't know. Uh, more importantly, I don't care. Mm-hmm. Uh, oh, are you done? He says no. I'm just going to keep writing. Mm-hmm. So he didn't think. I I don't know. I just I just I'm just guessing that he doesn't even think about how big it was or what he's doing. He just does it. Yeah. He just he just does it. And so, talking about creativity, he created something from him. Okay, that probably never existed. And there's a reason because I, I, I don't know. You're right, David. I'm not sure. It, it'd be very difficult to read all that. It's probably the same stories over and over again. And and it's disjoint. and he, he was just writing. He wasn't trying to communicate. He was just trying to to write. And he did. He wasn't trying to tell someone a story. He was telling his story. Uh, and uh, But that didn't matter. What mattered was, was he, he wrote and he drew. He wrote and he drew. And some of the pictures were pretty elaborate. Mm-hmm. I, I read somewhere that one of them was like 30 feet, 30 feet long yeah or 20 feet, 20 feet long. I mean, it wasn't a little picture like this. He would do these massive, massive uh, pictures that... Uh, and it was on both sides, too.
0: I saw that one at the museum.
1: So, it's, did you? it's 30, did on
0: both sides it's 30 feet long you walk around and it's on this glass enclosure you go around the other side there's another whole, totally different painting on the other side wow
1: yeah and I guess that's referred to as art outsider art or something like that outside of music Outs. yeah because
0: he had no training None at all and yeah. he he just went
1: for it yeah he just did talk about creativity he, you're right he just went for it and within himself he created things without anyone telling him how to do it. Uh, and uh, he just discovered things on his own because he had a desire uh, to to generate uh, pictures and generate words and generate a story, and he did it. So because of that desire, he created things.
0: Now, of course, he passed away. Um, I don't think he's as transformative an artist as maybe someone like Van Gogh, who sold one painting in his entire lifetime, and then now is universally regarded as a genius. But it just shows that at the point that he died in the 70s, no one knew who the hell he was. And I saw him in the 2000s, mid-2000s, late 2000s, um, displayed at a museum in New York City. And he was the marquee exhibit. So he did achieve some de- degree of success and notoriety. That's why we're talking about him. Um, I mean, it could have been just as tragic if he had a different landlord. They would have gone in and taken all his stuff and thrown it in the trash heap.
1: That's right. And this that's would that's have right.
0: never been known. And I guess it wouldn't have really made a difference to him. Right? We know no. about it now. And we can we can reflect upon the story and say some people, they just have to create. Creating is what they do. Um, I think that he worked to live. And his life was that creation. And that's right. that's the fascinating thing to me. I, he didn't have a passion for cleaning the bathrooms at a hospital, cleaning, scrubbing <laughs> the floors at a hospital. He had a passion for writing *The Vivian Girls*,
1: right? And I, I bet if someone discovered it while he was alive, and said, "Oh, this is fantastic! Oh, well, let's make a museum. Uh, we need to recognize what you've done." And I bet Henry said, "I don't care. You know, no. I don't want. I don't want to be recognized. Mm-hmm. That's not why I'm doing this. That's not why I did it. I, I, I don't know. But I, I'm guessing he'll just say he'll just say no." Another story along that line, David, is uh, which I love to tell is uh, Thomas Bayes, uh, which is very similar to this. He was a Thomas Bayes was a minister and uh, he was he uh, loved statistics and he had, he'd go home at night and just work statistics problems and do statistical analysis and do statistical derivatives and theorems and and have corollaries and just just wrote about statistics. And he did all kinds of uh, theoretical statistics uh, on his own. And no one knew what he was doing. After he died, one of his friends came in and found all of his writings, read it, and realized that this is brand new statistics. No one's been doing this. And so his friend began publishing what he did and those publications became seminal in a branch of statistics today called Bayesian statistics. And Bayesian statistics is the foundation of a lot of what's happening today uh, in, uh, in streaming, uh, internet streaming, and looking at predictions, uh, looking at uh, uh, the pandemic and epidemics. Uh, I mean, it's in almost every phase of data analysis, Bayesian statistics from Thomas Bayes, and He never published anything. And no one really knew he was doing anything. And and so did he create something? Yeah, he did. Mm -hmm. But did he do it so people would recognize it? No, because no one did. And, uh, And also, why did he do that? Why did he create all of those statistics? Did he do it so someone could read it? No. Did he do it to make a change? No. Why did he do it? He do it because that's who he was.
0: Yeah, he enjoyed he enjoyed statistics. Now, did he really create it or did he discover it? Is it something that exists in the world, or is it a methodology that's novel that he created? Uh,
1: it could when, be both. When
0: you come to mathematics, it's like, oh, Isaac Newton discovered the gravitational constant, and it's like, did he discover the gravitational constant? I mean, he created the gravitational constant. So he didn't create anything. The gravitational constant he is, discovered. It. He discovered it.
1: You see what I'm saying? It always existed. He, he cre- yeah. Uh, well, it's a good point. It's a good point. I would say I would. S- it could be both. Uh, he did discover relationships in statistics because it was based on classic uh, logic, statistical and mathematical logic. But he discovered and created something that didn't exist before. Uh, and so whether it's that's a good point. What is what's the difference b- b- between discovery and creativity? You discover something or you create something uh, You discover something uh, That no one had known before But he actually created something he he didn't say it already existed. No, he created something that didn't exist from 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 known uh, relationships now Bayesian uh,
0: statistics. The, this is what the 1800s? Uh huh. Okay, so Bayesian statistics was invented over, safe to say, 100 years ago. That's completely safe to say, would you say?
1: Let's see what it was. He was born in 17, no, it was in the 1700s, 18th century. 200 years he, ago. Yeah, he died
0: in 1761. Okay, so Thomas Bayes d- died in 1761. So, yes, at least 200 years ago, 250 years ago. Like, yeah. And Bayesian statistics gets published. I feel like we're in an era where Bayesian statistics is being used more than at any point in the last 250 years. Because with big data, the ability, because Bayesian statistics sort of tracks changes over time. You know, previous events right. affect future outcomes. Right. Exactly. And with the inundation of data, more data is being created now in a day than existed in the entire world when Thomas Bayes wrote this theory. I mean, just our ability to, to create, generate data points and our ability to analyze them has increased by orders and orders and orders of magnitude. So this guy had no idea that his theorems would be driving the world 250 years later. And that's what's fascinating. But the thing is, going back to creativity, humans had to create algorithms based upon his, his statistics. They had to create ways to use it, ways to ingest data, ways to transform data, ways to use that data to make predictive decisions, ways to implement those predictive decisions in real time, Um, and then ways to evaluate how those implemented decisions affected outcomes based upon whether or not they changed little things. And that's exactly how the Internet works. That's exactly how Facebook works. That's exactly how Google works. And it's fascinating that some guy, 250 years ago, didn't even publish this stuff and it had to be his friend that saw it and said wow this could be powerful and yes it could be powerful but the thing is it wasn't as powerful in the 1700s or 1800s or 1900s as it is now so a lot of it is timing um and i think that's true with arts and i think that's true with music and i think that's true with movies and and that's why people cannot be recognized in their own lifetime but they're seen as a genius afterwards because the things they do sort of match a different time.
1: Well, that's that's very true in a lot of things in math and statistics, because a lot of the mathematics was was derived from Euclid way hundreds of years ago, and so when Bayes did it was kind of oh that's that's unique that's interesting, but what good is it? How are you going to use it? Well, the the value of the use of that is when you, like you say today, because of computers and other technology that allows the data to, for that to be effective. Same thing with uh, like optimization and uh, linear programming. Uh, yeah, the, the theory has been around for, for centuries, but it was just sitting there until we had computers <laughs> to use this uh, to create something. Uh, that uh, to solve problems that had never been solved before uh, and also see how linear programming or optimization, linear and nonlinear programming can be can be solved. Uh, it's 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 really interesting that creativity is creating something that hadn't existed, but sometimes it's creating something from something else. Mm-hmm. It's, it's saying, OK, you have this math, but then you're creating a math that hadn't existed, but it comes from the math. Okay. Or the I don't really feel is... like
0: creativity is really ever creating something from nothing. Like you said, who, uh, who, who invented the game? Like if you're writing a book, who invented the language? Well, millions of people over the course of thousands of years invented the language that you're using right now. Um, That's right. If you create a sculpture, so you're not creating something from nothing, there's clay. Um,
1: I think you're right, David. Create, creativity is creating something from something. Mm-hmm. But when you create something from something, it's something that hadn't existed before. But you've created it from something. (laughs) Like you take a clay and you create it you create, yeah. You create something that hadn't existed before. It was clay, but now it's a different kind of sculpture. So how do we wrap this all up? I don't know. (laughs) So we have the creative brain, we have
0: in the realms of the unreal. And I think that the through line with those is Yes, some people would say your success within your own field, your recognition of your peers or the success amongst the public is evidence of your creativity. I would argue creativity could exist in the absence of anyone watching as well, and it does, and Henry Darger is an example of that. But regardless, I think the takeaway is creativity is a good thing. I think that's what we've learned today. And I think that if you have an opportunity to do something creative today, you should go out and do that thing.
1: And never stop and never stop. I think creative being creative is being human and being, and being creative, you'd never stop. And failure is not even in the vocabulary of someone who's creative. You'll failure your way to success externally, or you'll just keep doing it because you're doing it because that's who you are.
0: Yes. So I'm queuing up the outro music. This has been the Sons of Sequoia podcast. Broadcasting live from Wheat Ridge, Colorado, the home of the champions. I am David Harper with my father, Michael Harper, and we've been discussing the creative brain and in the realms of the unreal. Uh, If you enjoyed this podcast, feel free to subscribe on YouTube or follow us on any of the podcast sites, Google Podcasts, Apple Podcasts, Amazon Podcasts, or Stitcher. And as we leave today, I'll let you have the last word.
1: We want to say keep on talking, but listen more than you talk and try to understand what the other person is saying.